0: Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast
1: this moment in our history.
2: Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. The event known as Peterloo started out as a peaceful protest in Manchester on the 16th of August, 1819. A crowd of around 60,000 men, women, and children gathered at 2 p.m. at St. Peter's Field demanding reform and democracy, regular elections, universal male suffrage, and a secret ballot. The presence of that impassioned crowd alarmed local magistrates already frightened over the rise of Luddism and what they saw as dangerous radicalism, When they authorized troops to make arrests, a panicked cavalry charged into the crowd, killing approximately 18 people and injuring over 600 more. In short order, the Peterloo Massacre would be widely commemorated in the form of ballads, popular songs both printed and sung that memorialized the victims and cemented the event's place in working class and radical history. Today, in the bicentenary year of Peterloo, we turn our attention to the songs of the massacre. Dr. Alison Morgan is a senior teaching fellow in the Center for Teacher Education at the University of Warwick. Her recent book, Ballads and Songs of Peterloo, contains over 70 ballads brought into one volume for the first time. Brian Peters and Pete Coe are renowned folk musicians from the Northwest who've spent decades performing music inspired by Peterloo and the radical ballad tradition. Together with musician Laura Smith, they're now touring as The Road to Peterloo, singing freshly discovered ballads and original tunes in venues across the UK. Alison Morgan, Brian Peters and Pete Coe met with History Workshop's Kate Gibson to discuss Peterloo and the ballads it inspired.
0: Come listen to my story, the true to you I'll tell. It happened up in Manchester, a place that I know well. To redress our wants and walls, reformers came that way. A lawful meeting being called on a certain day will go will go'll we'll go. we'll
3: mount the of liberty, joy. So this is Kate Gibson on behalf of History Workshop and I'm joined in an unusually sunny Manchester for a discussion about the ballads of Peterloo.
0: I'm Pete Coe, I'm one of the singers for uh, concerts, a concert series we're doing, called The Road to Peterloo.
4: I'm Brian Peters, I'm uh, performing together with, uh, with Pete Coe and also with Laura Smith as part of the, the Road to Peterloo project.
1: And I'm Dr Allison Morgan from Warwick University and I'm the author of Ballads and Songs of Peterloo.
3: So I suppose we'll start really just by asking how you all got into ballads in the first place? and your kind of personal history with them, if you like.
0: Well, about 50 years ago, I was going to uh, my local folk club, which in those days was in Cheltenham, and I was always fascinated by the singers who uh, you know, sang narrative songs. Now I like the stories, and at that particular time, I was lucky enough to be able to hear some of the great old traditional ballad singers, most of whom, of course, uh, are no longer with us. So that, that engaged my interest.
4: I, um, I I grew up around these parts. Went to school just down the road from here. Was aware of Peterloo at school. I have a vivid memory of the Khrushchev <laughs> cartoon of the uh, the fat faced trooper bearing down on a woman who was kneeling on the floor, and he's about to slash her with his saber, and that made a great impression on me as a fourteen year old. So I suppose while I was still at school, I went to my first folk club and saw a band called the Alden Tinkers, and from them. Gradually more involved with the local folk music scene and met a chap called Harry Boldman, who uh, I became quite close to for a period in the nineteen eighties. And he was a champion of local songs and particularly local songs with a radical edge about industry. Harry sang some of the the well known Peterloo songs, so that was my grounding.
1: I came to Peterloo through research. So my PhD thesis that I did at the University of Salford was looking at Shelley and the poems that he wrote in response to the Peterloo Massacre. And it's through looking at Shelley's poems that I started to uncover the ballads and other poems that were written in response to the massacre, written by unknown balladeers, and that sparked my interest, and so I started collecting them.
3: So just to be specific about it, to all of you, what makes a ballad a ballad and what makes it different to a folk song or a sung poem?
0: It's the narrative aspect, I think, of all this. And the thing about Peterloo is that, that there was a very strong broadside tradition anyway in the main cities in England and Scotland, and particularly in Manchester. And I suppose the thing about Peterloo is that there were lots of broadside printers who were there on the day, who were witnesses. And so they wrote down you know, their, their impressions of about what had happened, and, and many of them uh, were published almost straight away in in some of the radical newspapers of the time, and I suppose really what uh, the importance of Peter Lewis that uh, there were a large number of very literate witnesses, and so the information about the event was widespread, possibly more so than any other event prior to that. So uh, you know the powers that be couldn't get away with a certain amount of regional anonymity,
3: so. Really then, are ballads important because they're so immediate? Is that as a kind of reactionary medium?
4: they were immediate in the sense that they were being produced very, very quickly. In the sense of their immediacy as tools, I mean, some of them are written in quite convoluted language, which as a singer now I will occasionally edit to make it a bit more direct in a way that speaks to it modern audience, but I think Pete's got a good point as well about the eyewitnesses, because one of the one of the songs we have in our performance was written by a man called John Stafford, who was an eyewitness to the events, and who also, it was reported, went and sang his songs at, uh, at gatherings of radicals. So, there's a particular narrative that Stafford wrote that has got an awful lot of detail about the events of the day, including at least one mm-hmm. named individual that you can Trace in the in the history books a, a particular trooper who uh, called Chalmerdine, uh, who was one of the one of the villains
0: of the piece.
1: Yeah, and as both Pete and Brian say, it is ballads are about marking a point in time, so they were a method of communicating, disseminating information to quite a wide audience. I mean, we know that the radical periodicals that they were printed in, some of them had quite large circulation. And for every one that was sold, a number of people would have read it or it would have been read or sung to them. So it's a way of disseminating news, of commemorating as well events, of making that marker so that people are aware of what's happened. Because most of the mainstream newspapers, they can't rely on the way in which they would report certain events
0: yeah until the mid part of the uh, the 19th century there was a quite hefty paper tax and so a lot of uh, i mean a lot of the historical events I mean, things like you? the death of nelson it, you know was carried in lots and lots of balance because people couldn't afford to produce newspapers so in, in some ways it's, it's sort of quite remarkable that there were so many by the time you get to peterloo that there were so many radical papers and in fact fairly shortly after Peterloo, the government hoiked the tax on paper again which made it just uneconomic to produce newspapers for another, pretty about another 50 years.
3: So do you see ballads then as a way of getting out the voice of the working class or a way for people who are not um, in charge to make their voices heard, is that why they're important?
0: The political broadside certainly, I think. I mean. The, you have to, I suppose you have to distinguish between some of the old classic ballads, you know, songs like Barbara Allen or the uh, the Two Sisters, and then the Broadside Ballads, which covered some national events, like, you I know, mean, the example was, again, with the death of Nelson, but also lots of local events as well. Some of them political, some of them fabricated stories, really.
4: I think also you have to draw a distinction between Ballads that were sung and pieces that were intended mostly to be read, because we have actually quite sparse evidence for the way in which these ballads might have permeated into what was folkies like to call the the oral tradition. We know specifically that the song with Henry Hunt "Will Go" was being sung around the streets, but unfortunately, there were only snatches of it. Were still being remembered by the time anybody got round to trying to make a make a note of it. Some of the others you suspect were meant primarily for, for being read as as verse really rather than songs. So part of the challenge for us is to take things that may indeed never have been sung and, and make them singable. Sometimes there are teams that are specified that you can find, sometimes there are not, sometimes there's a team specified as tell Alice and I were discussing uh, Rural Britannia, for instance, were used as some sort of parodic versions with subversive verses, but for me, going out and singing to a modern audience, then Rural Britannia may not be the vehicle that I wish to use to, to put those kind of sentiments across.
1: And it's important to remember that, apart from John Stafford and Michael Wilson, that most of the, the ballads in the collection are written by unknown people. They're anonymous. Partly because the ballad tradition, you know, the, the anonymous voices uh, play a major part, but also for people it would have been a way of avoiding prosecution
5: <laughs> as well.
3: Could you say a little bit more about the, the, the anonymity of it? And so in a ballad, in a ballad tradition, are most of the voices anonymous? There's why, a, why? There's a the
1: mixture, people? I'd say. I mean, you know, the, the really traditional ones, like people say, Barbara Allen and so on, I mean, they've existed for goodness knows how many hundreds of years, yeah. and so their origin is lost in the midst of time. No, no, but their origin was
4: probably in a printed sheet in the first yes. place. Yes. But just a lot further back.
1: Yeah. Whereas um, you know, there are some very known balladeers, so John Stafford being one. A local balladeer, Joseph Mather, um, who was famed for writing radical versions of the national anthem, would be another one. So there's a mix between people who, well, obviously they earn their living by writing and, and singing and selling ballads, but a lot of the names have been lost.
3: So Brian, you brought up this idea about changing things for a modern audience, and the that- the difficulty of trying to work out exactly what tune they were meant for and all this kind of thing. Is it important to you as performers that you are, I'm going to use the word authentic, you can define it in any way mm-hmm. you want, but does that play a part in what you do or not? Yeah,
4: thanks for leading us into a mind <laughs> we, we argue, all of, all of us in, in our little neck of the woods argue all the time about authenticity and sometimes, and this is a personal view, sometimes... It's a question of making compromises, but there have been instances when I've rewritten old ballads and I think, well, maybe I've gone too far there. Maybe I've lost too much of the original sense of it and I need to bring it back. In the case of this project, there've been one or two rewrites that I've run past Alison to see, well, what do you think of this? This makes sense to me as a singer, but have I departed too far from the script? And I think it was one instance where Alison said, I'm not very keen of that line that you've put in there. So I changed it back again, that's fine. Yes, authenticity is, a, is a, a very difficult topic. I mean, I also sing a lot of the, the really old ballads, the Barbara Allen's of this world, and those appear in old collections, and they're often in archaic language, and you, you just have to make a decision. I don't want to sing to an audience who are glazing over because the text is so dense and incomprehensible that they've lost track of the story, they've got to hear the story.
0: Yeah, in most cases, with the, with the old classic ballads anyway, there's loads and loads of different versions. For example, you know, the Raggle Taggle Gypsies. I've got a book with 147 different versions in it. And that doesn't include the version that I sing. <laughs> because I've, you know, I've moved about with it simply because I like the story, but I wanted to tell it in a way that, that reflected me.
4: And I think it's also worth making the point that this has always gone on to some extent. What we know from folk singers collected in the field, is that they might have sung things that were recognisably text that were derived from a printed sheet, but that changes have gone on, whether from that particular singer or the singer before them in the chain. So things were never set in stone.
1: And there are also some songs in the collection where they've taken an existing song and rewritten some of the words to it so for example there's one of the poems called "Britons who have often bled which is based on scots were hay Where wallace bled which is written by robert burns and so if you, if you put two two songs side by side you can see how the peterloo one has, has taken that and just altered a few words so it's as brian said it's just part of that ongoing oral tradition and the, and the move between print and oral tradition as yeah. well. So something might start uh, from print culture, move into oral culture, move back to print culture in a slightly different way. So it's, it's a dynamic form that's, that's constantly changing. So there never is a, a really yeah. a definitive version of something.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean the, one of the examples I can give you is that Roy Palmer, who was a good friend of Harry Bowden, who Brian mentioned recorded uh, a traditional singer that I'd met back in the black country, back in my days when I lived in Birmingham, a fellow called George Dunn, and he recorded lots of songs and he started singing a song called The Broomfield Wager, but he could only remember the first verse. So Roy gave him a broadside and left him to it, and then came back two or three months later and asked George if he now remembered even The Broomfield Wager, and George could. It wasn't much like the broadside, it had just spurred George's memory as to the version that he'd long since forgotten. That's how he goes, that's, you know, he transformed it.
3: So, all three of you kind of are involved in preserving these salads in different ways, but do you see yourselves as preserving a heritage or as continuing in a living thing that is still part of, particularly this part of the world?
0: Well, at 73, I'm still living, so
4: <laughs> I'm still working on it. <laughs> it again, there are we, we have feet in more than one camp. I'm a professional entertainer, that's what I have to do. I have to entertain audiences or I don't get work. But at the same time, I'm very interested in the research, in the history, in the way that some of these uh, old songs do interact with social developments at the time. But these things are not mutually exclusive, I think.
1: And and for me, you know, uncovering these poems and songs, I mean, some of them had had languished in archives in libraries around Manchester since whenever. And so bringing them into print, what was was the first stage of the process, but what's been really lovely of working with with Pete and Brian and Laura is them taking the songs and putting them back into performance which is obviously where they would have been so for me yeah i found them and put them together but but then the musicians have taken them and brought them back to life which is really important that they need to exist orally as well as in print
4: but this was why it was so exciting for us because i I remember telling a friend who's been around our music scene a long time that i was involved with this project on peterloo and he said well you're not still doing the same old boring songs are you because there's a very small number of songs that everybody knows about Peterloo, but then to have this wealth of material that Alison's provided is really exciting for us. It enables us to gain new insights into the history and also to present it to people in in fresh ways.
3: It's no coincidence that History Workshop is doing a feature on Peterloo in twenty nineteen. Um, so to bring it back to Peterloo specifically, how important do you think ballads are to? the commemorations and the kinds of things that are going on in Manchester and across the country.
1: It's really important as part of the the Peterloo commemorations because what what the ballads and songs give is the the authentic voice. And so whilst it's great to have modern interpretations of Peterloo or modern versions, I think having the, the voices of the people who were there is a really, really important part. And also, it's a way that, for me, uh, I'm sure it's the same for you, using song as protest. Mm. You know, we've got a huge tradition in this country of of song as a form of protest, and I think kind of foregrounding that, and, and, you know, we might have lost it a little bit along the way, and so I would hope that that is part of the legacy, that that people will see the value of turning to poetry and song as a way
0: of voicing. Yeah, and I think probably for a lot of, even our generation, and certainly a younger generation, that that it was Bob Dylan who invented protest songs, and of course that's rubbish, you know, there was a lot more going on. But sometimes stuff that happened and stuff that was written and circulated in a small way on your own doorstep is just not known about.
4: No, I mean, when I started going to folk clubs, Everybody was singing about Vietnam, and this, this rather puts me in a, a, a certain demographic as well, obviously. But then to meet somebody like Carrie Baldwin, who's singing old songs, but songs that go, you tyrants of England, your race will soon be run. Yeah, that really gave, it was both historical and it had a, a contemporary uh, message, I think.
0: I saw that in Ireland, my God, in the South of Ireland, that. That chorus went down. I got a round of applause before I even
3: started the bloody song. You know? So is there a kind of universality to ballads that make them a kind of perfect medium for, for radicalism, if you like, because you know they're portable, they're catchy, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need that many resources to reproduce them, especially if you reproduce them orally. So it, are the Peter Lee ballads just the tip of an iceberg of radical music?
0: Oh, yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, sold on street corners, people, you know, there, there were itinerant musicians well into the 20th century, actually, who would go down to the local printers and, uh, you know, look at the selection that was available, and they would pick on some you know, a selection of songs about uh, recent events. In this case, we're talking about Peterloo. But they might also pick up a copy of Barbara Allen, because that was a good steady seller. And, uh, you know, such, uh, itinerants such as Brian, Laura and myself would be standing on a street corner singing these songs and, and, and selling the broadside for a, a penny or a hint apiece. One of the things that
4: we're trying to do, obviously the songs from Alison's book are right bang in the centre of what we're doing, but we also thought it would be a good idea to put them in some kind of context. And there are many ballads from the preceding years we have about the Luddites, we have one about the, the poverty of the cotton weavers. So this was not one specific event. Working onwards from Peterloo, there are a number of songs about from the Chartist period. We have a, a, a ballad about a great Chartist mating on Curzel Moor in Salford in the 1830s, of which they're still singing about Peterloo. They sing Remember Peterloo and Remember Henry Hunt. So it was still resonating then. And... The Peterloo Ballads, I think, are, as you say, part of a a much longer tradition of of radical balladry. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes, and there's there's a lot of references in some of the songs in the book that go back to the 17th century. So they very much saw themselves in that tradition of the kind of levellers and the diggers, and we know that music came out from from those radicals as well. So, yeah, there's a very strong tradition within English-British folk music of radical music and it's those like like people was saying Brian about the uh, anti-tyrant sentiments I mean those that's in all the Peacefully poems so you can see how they hark back to the tradition so you're getting those perennial themes of anti-tyrant that that encouragement to rise up wake up which is, which is a well-known trope in lots and lots of songs and we see that Shelley uses that in Mask of Anarchy. So, so they're taking, whilst, whilst they're talking specifically about the events of Peterloo, they're using motifs and themes that, that we see in so many ballads and songs in the preceding centuries.
3: I mean, that leads quite nicely to the idea of is there anything particularly Manquian or Northwestern or Lancastrian about the ballads that... I mean, obviously, Peterloo is very rooted in St. field, but do you think that the ballads are a really distinct part of Manchester culture? Do they use a lot of dialect? Do you see see them as very local, or are they part of a national thing?
1: I was just going to say, a lot of the radical periodicals, so about three-quarters of the ones that I found were were printed in radical periodicals, and most of those, apart from the Manchester Observer, were London-based. So whether or not they were London writers or people from Manchester, I don't know. So I think, I think there's, speaking to a national audience, definitely, I think there's one in the book that's written in dialect. Some of them very clearly are rooted in place because they refer to the local towns and, I think Brian said at the beginning, actual people within it. So I think there's that kind of double audience. There's the Manchester audience, but then there's the national audience.
4: I think there's an interesting point, possibly a digression, but really an event like this could only have happened in Manchester because Manchester was simultaneously the site of the mass mechanisation of, of the spinning industry. So you have those great mills that are still up there in Ancoats now. They were all built at the time of Peterloo, and there was a whole enclave in what used to be the New Cross area, which is where Oldham Street uh, intersects with Great Ancoats Street. And that was full of tenements of the people who worked in those spinning mills, a hotbed of radicalism. There were riots in New Cross after the events of the day of St Peter's Fields, but at the same time you had this this ring of satellite towns like Oldham and Ashton and Stockport, Rochdale, Middleton, where hand weaving was still carrying on because hand weaving was mechanised later than spinning was. So you had a lot of poor spinners crammed into city tenements, but also a lot of handweavers from the outlying areas who were all being put out of business because or having their wages lowered because of changes in their own industry. So you have those, those two factions coming together. So although many of the songs tell of marches coming from Stockport and Rochdale and Oldham and so on, there was also a, a large contingent from inside the city as well. and those, So those all came together.
1: And another key factor uh, around Manchester is the dissenting religions. So the fact that Methodism was was so strong around here certainly empowered a lot of the women. So there were a lot of women marches at Peterloo and women formed political unions and they were emboldened by the dissenting religions because they were allowed to preach, of course. So, So their kind of position their politicisation I guess was heightened by that and I think that's very much rooted in the North West
4: well, I don't think it's entirely a coincidence that the suffragettes Absolutely. have this uh, link Manchester yeah. Manchester's a, a radical yeah. city it was, it was before Peterloo and it was after as well so huge uh, base for Chartism, um, the suffragettes Marx and Engels, and I take, it, yeah, as well. okay. I, I take it right through to the 20th century because I'm a bit of a, I'm a rambler, so the mass trespass, I think, is also part of the, the radical Mancunian tradition.
3: So to go back to the purposes of the ballads and the content of the ballads, so we've talked about them being a, a form of news and about reporting what happened at Peterloo. Do we have any evidence that they were used to drum up support for the meeting before it became Peterloo? And do we have ev- any evidence that it was sung, that they were sown in the crowd as a kind of motivating force to get people to come out?
1: No, this is Shaw's okay. because <laughs> they, they were all written in response to Peter Peterloo. Uh, the first one appeared five days later in the Manchester Observer. So what is interesting is that how the event sparked all this creativity and that people turned to poetry and songs as a way to express, you know, their anger, their rage, their grief at the events that had happened. It's interesting, we know that there were bands at Peterloo amongst the marchers, and a lot of those uh, musicians would, would have been ex-military because they would have been musicians who played at Waterloo. And so they had their instruments and they played, but they played patriotic tunes. So they played "Rule Britannia, God Save the King, See the Conquering Hero Comes is another one, all of which the tunes were then used to create radical uh, parodies of those in the Peterloo poems.
3: So in your book, Alison, you divide the, the ballads that you found thematically I think, into six themes, think. Could you just say a little bit more about the range of contents, if you like, of the Peterloo ballads and what they're really about, if you like? So
1: yeah, I divided them thematically because when I was collecting them, you were starting to see themes crop up. So the first... Chapter, for example, is is about exhortatory ballads, the ballads that are saying "rise up, wake up," uh, which is very much part of the tradition. But as well as ballads, there are so many other different forms, from a sonnet to elegies. So one of one of the chapters is about elegy. So a lot of them, I think, Brian or Pete mentioned earlier, wouldn't have been written to have been sung. So as well as the, the narrative ballads, the ones that stay to tune, the ones that very that are called a new song, that that were meant to have music put to them. A large majority weren't. Yeah, so there's a huge range of genres. There's a chapter that's looking at the victimisation of women and children and how women are portrayed in the poems as being victims of the Manchester and Suffolk German Cavalry because we know that women were disproportionately attacked and and targeted by by the sabres and the horses' hooves of the cavalry. There's also a chapter looking at liberty and slavery, lots of poems understandably calling on freedom from a tyrannical regime. So it is really broad-ranging.
3: So those ones that you talk about connecting to wider themes like like freedom and slavery, do they specifically situate Peterloo within this wider radical cause? You know, we've talked about the... The applicability of these ballads to 20th century conflicts, I suppose, want of the best word, but and movements. But are these are the ballads at the time were they specifically reaching out and making connections with these wider movements?
1: Yeah, definitely. So there's a lot. I mean, Peterloo is is you know a nod to Waterloo. So there's an awful lot of comparisons made between Peterloo and Waterloo. You know, we know that, that a lot of the people on the march would have been Waterloo veterans, as were the, the soldiers themselves. I mean, there's references to the French Revolution, and as I mentioned earlier, lots of references back to the 17th century. So there's poems that talk about Hamden and Sidney and Russell who were Republican martyrs at the end of the 17th century. So they are situating themselves very much within both that kind of revolutionary tradition. And William Wallace is another figure who, who crops up, who's mentioned quite a few times. So they see themselves, the balladeers see themselves as part of that, part of that ongoing movement of people who have stood up to the authorities.
3: And what about the, the kind of wider cultural uh, trends that the ballads are drawing on? You know, are there a lot of inside jokes, <laughs> for example? You know, you've mentioned um, Shelley drawing on the ballads but did the balladeers draw on kind of much bigger or perhaps areas of culture that would have been more familiar to a middle class or an upper class, for example? How, sort of, wide is their sphere of influence that they're drawing on to make these ballads?
0: Well, a lot of them were working-class writers. I mean, I've got a song that's uh, written by a shoemaker, but it was also a published poet. And that's, a, that's really a, a satire on one of the leading... One of the leading villains, I think, in Peterloo story, the Reverend uh, Ethelston. So there, there's an element of that, of, of satire, that comes through, as well as you know, the serious balladry that just recounts
1: exactly what happened. I mean, what's interesting about Shelley's Musk of Anarchy is that he wouldn't have seen any of the ballads that were written after Peterloo, and yet, it, even though he wrote it at the same time he wrote mm-hmm. it in September of 1819, Although a lot of the themes that he writes in Mask of Anarchy, you can see in the *Peterloo* poems, even though they wouldn't have had access to each other, so that in itself is quite interesting. And he he wrote it quickly, just as the balladiers would have done. And even though it wasn't, he couldn't get it published until 18 well, it was published in 1832. He was obviously trying to tap into that, I suppose, vernacular culture, for want of a better term. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the, a couple of the poems were published in The Examiner, which was more of a middle-class radical journal. But I, I would say that, by and large, their audience would be the kind of labouring classes from whence they came, the balladeers themselves.
3: So are there cultural influences? I mean, we talked about the importance of older ballads, but are that, is that the main cultural influence, or are they drawing wider cultures?
1: Well a few of them are using s- Tunes that came out Of the theatres So for example Hearts of Oak uh, I think a couple of the songs are written to Hearts of Oak Which, which appeared in a, in a pantomime David Garrick pantomime In the mid 18th century And so there's a, there's a few of the tunes That started their life in, in Either at like Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens Or yeah. in, in popular Popular songs of the time So there's that crossover, there's that kind of cultural crossover
4: I think it's just as an aside it's very interesting about the the military musicians who came back from Waterloo there's also a a large volume of evidence of the instrumental music that was being played precisely this period, the early part of the 19th century and an awful lot of the tunes that those people are actually playing for their local dances were the melodies of songs from exactly the the, the theatre and the pleasure gardens that you're talking about there
3: And how, I mean, I know, Alison, that you have found a lot of um, ballads that were not really published recently at all. So how did these ballads find their way to us now? Is it all through oral tradition or is it through newspapers? Were they collected? You know, in the 19th century, you get a lot of of middle-class people collecting as folklore, if you like, ballads. Is that how they survived or another way?
1: I mean, a lot of them have survived because we have copies of the papers in which they were published. I mean, I, did fa- I have found one or two in the Working Class Movement Library archives that were published later in the 19th century in chapbooks and so on. So we know that some of them had a life afterwards. Broadsides... The broadside ballads that we have left now, some of those would have formed part of collections. And it's quite ironic that in Cheatham's they've got um, a portfolio, it's called the Hay Portfolio. And, and Hay was one of the Manchester magistrates. And within that, I found some of the Peterloo broadsides. So it's some of its luck. I'm sure there's probably still others out there. I'm sure I haven't found them all. That are, and we will have lost a lot as well.
4: I think in terms of the oral tradition, uh, you have to remember two things. One is what we covered before, that some of these things were never intended to be sung. Also, the, the oral tradition was mostly done by fieldwork in the in rural areas, so there were very few of those collectors who, who went near the cities at all. So we we have very little proof one way or the other of whether these things were sung. We know there's a, a report of one of the, the Luddite songs being sung in, Hubs around Huddersfield area. Frank Kidson, who's a collector that Peter studied in detail, was the one who found this fragmented with Henry Humble Go. But other than that, we don't have a lot of oral evidence for many of these uh, broadside ballads.
3: So if someone was curious about this and wanted to hear some ballads, are they... I mean, I know we're in a centenary of uh, Peterloo, so there'll be more about than usual, but are they performed regularly by people like yourselves? Are they on YouTube? Can someone just look them up?
0: Well, we've, um, obviously, we're recording a a full CD of the songs that that we're doing, songs that lead up to Peterloo and songs about Peterloo itself. And Brian mentioned Halle Boardman. Overall, I don't think they're sung very much. Uh, these days, there's a, there's a, a young, new, and younger audience for for whom even Henry Hunt, the best known of those songs, they probably don't know.
4: Our particular interest is in uh, singing songs which speak in the voices of people from the time. But it, 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 we also have to say there are people who've written songs about Peterloo much more recently, some of which good, and that's not our focus. There's a very well-known one that the old the Tinkers sing, which was written by a dialect poet from Rochdale by the name of Harvey Kershaw. I think that one goes was probably written in the 1960s, but that is the probably the best-known Peterloo song. Salute once more those men of yore who were to conscience true, spill their blood for common good on the fields of Peterloo. So that, I'm sure you can find that kind of thing on YouTube and quite possibly some of Harry's stuff.
1: Yeah, and the critics... A, um, a version they took Henry Hunt. We go because there's only a, a verse and a chorus extant. The kids couldn't find any more than that, nor could Roy Palmer. So they, so the critics in the 1960s wrote extra verses to the Henry Hunt. We go, and the, there was an overture as well for the 150th anniversary mm-hmm. that was written.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay, brilliant. We will now leave that there. Um, so I would just want to say uh, thank you to my three contributors. Who are also going to honour us with some ballad music.
4: This is a, this is a ballad that was originally called Just Peterloo, and it's one of several that were called Just Peterloo. So um, I've retitled it The Pride of Peterloo, which is uh, a line from one of the verses. Because this is one of these heavily uh, ironic songs that, uh, that portrays this this deeply sarcastic picture of the heroism of the yeomanry mm. and parodies the the link with the Battle of Walsley. Russell is sails the distant shores those foreign armies to subdue but how Yeah, Warriors slew that all the world with one accord cry, No, twas like this, Peter. So must we keep all Albion
0: free, face to every This is uh, St. Ethelston's Day, and uh, it was set somewhat ironically to Prince Regent's favourite tune, which was called Geo Dobby." It's about Reverend uh, Charles Wixton Ethelston, who was the rector of St. Mark's, Cheatham Hill, and he was a magistrate who also read the Riot Act, and he was a pompous, pompous, published poet uh, whose Christianity didn't prevent him from spreading alarm. Sending long winded reports to the Home Secretary and employing spies to infiltrate uh, infiltrate reformers' meetings. So, uh, St. So Ethelston's Day.
5: <laughs>
0: now, hey, Manchester Parsons Church in Kingston, much flamed in the pulpit, and more on the bench. This hope to be sainted without more delay On the 16th of August was fixed for the day To contrive the best means on his genius was bent And to celebrate such an auspicious jersey When I saw the ring in marching array And he to the field on St. Edward's Day informed it was good that the best of his saints should be sprinkled with blood when his councillors whispered it will be the best way to crush the reformers but such our Thurston's day and he took their advice and just to make sure the riot and red on the stamps of his door when they opened Galloped to to do some great exploit on the St. Hethel's to
5: Day They hacked up the breasts of the women and then they cut up the
0: ears
2: Many thanks to Brian Peters and Pete Coe. Details about their live performances and much more can be found on their website, theroadtopeterloo.com. Thank you as well to Dr. Alison Morgan. Her book, Ballads and Songs of Peterloo, is available from Manchester University Press. Special thanks today to Kate Gibson, who created this podcast, to Imogen Greenberg, who edited it, and to The Ohio State University Digital Union. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.
5: Rise Britons, rise now from your slumber. Rise and tell the glorious day. Stand and be counted with the number. With true friends of liberty Can't you see those heroes bleeding Lying on the crimson floor Britain's sons who died for freedom Alas, who fell to rise no more So come here, lads, let's all be true And never, never for to ruin. Millas, let's all be free With shouts of hunt and woes It was on the 16th day of August That we met on Peterloo Plain When we arrived at the regardless Little we knew of their dreadful schemes But we spied them near advancing With their swords drawn in their hands Crowds of people charging, but for liberty we take a stand. So come, me lads, let's all be true and never, never for to rue. Come, me lads, let's all be free. Shout hunt and Worsley. But Henry Hunt, that Tiro, his name shall record it be. Friends, I'll never leave you No death should be my destiny To New Bailey, then they brought him In a dungeon close, confined For speaking words of truth and justice Oh, pity us these very hard times So come me lads, let's all be true And never, never for too. Come, oh, let's all be free with shouts so of hunt and wazly! Britannia's son, so faint for bravery, We fought so bold at Waterloo, now you're condemned to cruel slavery, oppressed by the laws of the few. So let us no longer greet them, but endeavor to be free. And let the air resound and echo with shouts of hunt and wolves' So come, me lads, let's all be true and never, never far to rue. Come, here, lads, let's all be free with shouts of hunt and woesley.